the portion I want to read is the 23rd chapter of Matthew. The 23rd chapter of Matthew. Um, there are, however, just one or two points <clears throat> I would like to make as we start these studies in the New Testament. The first is this, um, that obviously the four Gospels, as we shall be thinking more about this evening, are very much related to one another. And I have wondered whether I ought to take the four Gospels first together, uh, looking at them, reviewing them as they're related and connected one to the other, or whether we should wait. I have decided that it would be better to take the first Gospel, Matthew, and then follow it with Mark and Luke and John, and then at the end of it, when we've studied the four, review the whole four together in their relationship one to another in the unfolding revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that would probably be of the most benefit to all. The second thing is this, that Unfortunately, the Gospels are that part of the Word of God which is most familiar to us all. Even those of us who have not had much to do with the Bible are least familiar with the Gospels. Now, it is just because of that that there comes sometimes an apathy and an indifference. We tend to feel we know it. Now, um, of course, there will be some here who do know it uh, and know it well. I know a lot about uh, the Gospels. Uh, there are others here who um, know hardly anything at all. Now, in these studies, it is quite clear that there will be um, things said which will be completely above the heads of some, and other things will be said which are quite... Um, uh, so, will, will be so simple that some will feel that they're not getting what they ought to get. Uh, can I say that very clearly that when we're studying a book, we have to study a book. And therefore, there will be those things that some of you know already, which will have to be stated, and there will be other things which for some of you, you will not be able quite to understand. But I do trust that in every study, there will be something from the Lord for everyone, old or young. That ought to be so, didn't it? Now, there are two things that I think um, everyone can help in. And the more you obey these little injunctions of mine, these two injunctions or exhortations, I believe the more you will gain from these studies. The first is this. I suggest that you make these studies the excuse for reading through the whole gospel. In other words, I suggest that all of you, to the very eldest of you, you take a modern version and start at the first <laughs> chapter and read it clean through. Now, Matthew is 28 chapters. You may not be able to do it all, although, in fact, it would only take just over an hour, and some of you are quite happy to sit reading the newspaper for an hour, or watching television, or doing other things more unmentionable. Um, uh, you're quite happy to do those things. Now, all you've got to do is one hour of this week, between now and next week, sit down and read the whole gospel through in a modern version. When you've done that, get another modern version and read it right through again in another modern version. Read it again and again. Forget the verses, forget the chapters, read it right through as a book 
from start to finish. Now, we shall be on the Gospel of Matthew for probably about three, possibly four weeks. Uh, I don't know yet. Um, that gives you time to um, really um, read through um, this Gospel. Now, read right through it. And um, not only read right through it, but perhaps some of you start to read just a portion of it um, and slowly go through, perhaps in the revised version or the revised standard version. Um, the other thing is this, when you come to these studies, bring note paper with you, not a lot, uh, unless you're in the habit of taking a lot of notes, but bring just a sheet or two and a pencil and make notes um, uh, when... Um, of what I say, for instance, if I say something like this, that in the Gospel of Matthew the, there is a unique phrase which only occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, it is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Now you put that down, kingdom of heaven, only Matthew. Okay? Uh, perhaps I will say to you, righteousness is a word found peculiarly in the Gospel of Matthew. He always brings in righteous or righteousness. For instance, Luke says, Seek ye first the kingdom, and all these things shall be added unto you. But Matthew says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Put it down, see? There may be other things that I shall mention, like Son of David, or a number of other things. If you just jot these things down. Now, when you're reading through, if you don't mind marking your um, version, then when you come to it, underline it. In this way, the studies will mean more and more to you. You will feel that you are not just listening, but you are participating in these studies. So I, I, um, I make those um, little comments to you. They may help. If you've got any questions about it, come and ask afterwards. Now I'm going to read um, Matthew chapter 23 because it is a wonderful example of the style of Matthew, his distinctive style. You do not find this style in any of the other Gospels, and here you've got it, a, a cumulative style. Um, listen to the way he puts it. Then spake Jesus to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. All things, therefore, whatsoever they bid you, these do and observe. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Yea, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. But all their works they do to be seen of men, for they make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the chief place at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the salutations in the marketplaces, and to be called of men rabbi. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and all ye are brethren, and call no man your father on earth, on the earth, for one is your father, even he who is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even the Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and whosoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye enter not in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering in to enter. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, 
And when he has become so, ye make him twofold more a son of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides that say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that hath sanctified the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gift that is upon it, he is a debtor. Ye blind, for which is greater, the gift on the altar that sanctifieth the gift? He therefore that sweareth by the altar sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And he that sweareth by the temple sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that sweareth by the heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye tithe mint and anise and cumin, and have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. But these ye ought to have done, and not to have left the other undone, ye blind guides, that strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye cleanse the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full from extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first the inside of the cup and of the platter, that the outside thereof may become clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but inwardly ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye build the sepulchres of the prophets and garnish the tombs of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we should not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye witness to yourselves that ye are sons of them that slew the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye offspring of vipers. How shall ye escape the judgment of hell? Therefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them shall ye kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of Abel, the righteous unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachiah, whom ye slew between the sanctuary and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem that killeth the prophets, and stoneth them that are sent unto her. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Have in our past studies traversed the whole of the Old Testament, and we come tonight to the first of our studies in the New, to the Gospel according to Matthew. And whereas in the Old Testament, it may be good just to say this for the help of some, 
that whereas in the Old Testament we have seen foreshadowings, we have had to do with types and symbols and pictures, all looking forward to the future. Great wars and great offerings which have anticipated the work of Christ. Great prophecies which have pointed forward to his coming and to his work. Historical events and buildings and systems such as the priesthood and the sacrificial system, all of which symbolize something that is yet to come. We have really been dealing in its entirety with an old covenant, an old covenant which in its every aspect foreshadowed the eternal and new covenant which the Messiah was himself to make with us, but was in itself only transitory and passing. All this we have traversed and dealt with in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there is one vital and essential difference to anything in the Old Testament. And that is this. God speaks directly to us himself. He brushes aside the symbols and the types and the pictures and the foreshadowings and the historical events which symbolize something. All those things like the temple and the priesthood, which were just a picture of what was to come. He brushes it all aside. Even the very prophets, except, of course, for John the Baptist. After that, he brushes aside even the prophets themselves as intermediaries, as those through whom, by whom he speaks. And now, and this is the point, God himself appears on earth and speaks to us in person. Now that is the essential difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. For in the New Testament, the books of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, we have God manifest in the flesh. As it has been said, um, God speaks not merely in by divers portions, and in divers' manners through the prophets, but has in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. There it is, if you want to turn to it, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 1 and 2, God, having of old times spoken unto the fathers in the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us by his Son. Spoken unto us 
by his Son. Christ is the speech of God. Nothing less. Christ is the very speech of God. He is the word of God. This is perhaps the supreme title given to our Lord Jesus in the New Testament. The word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man hath seen God at any time the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now the word declare is to bring into view what, is, what has hitherto been unseen. To bring into view, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath brought into view what hitherto hath been unseen of him. He hath declared him. Now suffer this little word about the New Testament before we begin. There is this essential difference between the books of the Old Covenant and the books of the New. For here we have not mere foreshadowings, mere types, mere symbols, but the one himself to whom the whole Old Testament pointed to has appeared. God the Son now himself speaks and speaks directly to us. Now that is what we are going to consider as we come to these books in these studies. I think it's important as we come to the Gospels to underline that we call the f that what we call the four Gospels were originally and rightly called the Gospel. Now, if most of you uh, will turn in your Bibles to the New Testament and to the first page of Matthew, I don't think that any, certainly, of the versions um, uh, up to the revised version, the English revised version of 1881, and the American Standard Version of 1901, will differ. They all begin like this, the Gospel, the Gospel, colon, according to Matthew. And then a bit later on, you will find, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. In other words, originally it was not the Gospels. We loosely refer to these as the Gospels. We say, oh yes, well, it's in the Gospels. No, the original title, which wasn't in the actual original uh, writing, but comes to us from antiquity, was just in the singular, the Gospel. It was one Gospel given to us in a fourfold way. Now, there could be nothing more important this evening that we could underline than this. 
that it is supremely one gospel. The gospel is a unity. It's not just four different gospels pushed together out of which the apostolic church sort of made a hash and then drew out a kind of common gospel. No, from the very beginning it was one gospel. And this gospel is presented to us in a fourfold way. It is the gospel according to Matthew. It is the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Luke. And the gospel, the one gospel, according to John. These four different writers, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, give to us a different aspect of this one gospel, this everlasting gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I say, I believe that is very, very important. For it leads me to another just as important point, if not more important. And it is this, that there is in fact only one Christ. And the gospel is essentially bound up with Christ. You cannot divorce the gospel from Christ. It is the good news concerning God's Son. The gospel is nothing if you tear out the Lord Jesus, for he is truly the gospel. Christ is himself the essential element of the gospel. So you see, really, when we talk about the gospel being a unity, we are really talking about Christ himself. And we are saying that we have one Christ in these four works, one Christ presented to us from four angles, or if you like, one Christ presented in four aspects, so that from one angle we see one side of Christ, and from another angle we see another side of Christ, and from another angle we see another side of Christ. But it is only the one Christ who is presented to us in this fourfold way. And it seems to me, and to antiquity, uh, not perhaps so much to modern scholarship, uh, that this fourfold way is represented in the cherubim, in the heads of the cherubim that we find in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 4. Now, if you'd like to turn to that, we will just very simply refresh our memories as to what the heads of the cherubim were. Ephesians, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 10. As for the likeness of their faces, they had the face of a man, and they four had the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, they four had also the face of an eagle. Now this is very interesting. These weird symbolic creatures, if you looked at them from without, looking in, the face of a man. If you went right within the circle and looked out, the face of an eagle. If you went on the side, the face of an ox. If you went on the other side, the face of a lion. Now isn't that remarkable? From within, an eagle. From without, a man. On the right hand, a lion. On the left hand, an ox. Isn't that remarkable? 
Now, of course, antiquity again has been divided on how to portion this to the Gospels. So some said, well, the, the man was Matthew, because that's the order here. And the next one was the lion, so that must be Mark. But I think the right order is found in Revelation and chapter 4 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 7, where we read this. And the first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a cow, the third creature had the faces of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now the interesting thing is this, that this was one head. I don't know if any of you have ever seen those strange like kaleidoscope affairs. Um, I saw one of the children at the party had a big ring on his hand, give, got out of a cracker. Looked at it one way, it was John Kennedy. Looked at from another, it was Jacqueline Kennedy. Yet it was the same ring. Looked at one way, you saw one face. Looked at it from the other, you saw the other. This was rather like this vision of the cherubim. You looked at it one way, you saw a man. Looked at it another way, you saw a lion. Looked at it another way, you saw an ox. Looked at it another way, you saw an eagle. It was dependent upon where you looked. But it was only one head. And this fourfold creature in the book of Revelation is uh, uh, like a lion, like a calf, like a man, like an eagle. I think here that you have the presence of God uh, expressed in a fourfold way. And the Lord Jesus Christ is in the Gospels expressed in a fourfold way. In Matthew, we see Christ as the King. He is presented to us as the King. The King of the Jews, yes, but more than that, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Messianic King, or the Royal Messiah of the Seed of David. He is the Royal Lawgiver. That's how we find him presented in Matthew. He is the Lawgiver who sits as King amongst his people in the Kingdom of God and um, and gives the law of God. He is in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. In fact, the son of David is a title given to him over ten times in this one Gospel. To sum it all up, he is represented to us as the lion of the tribe of Judah. We see him from one aspect. We see him at the right hand and of the throne of God. We see him as God's king enthroned forever beyond the reach and the power of Satan, reigning there till his enemies become the footstool of his feet. That's the last picture we ever have when he comes and says that all authority and power has been given to him and tells us to go into the world and says, I am with you all way, even unto the end. It's the triumphant note of a triumphant king. Here's one. In Mark, we see Christ in a quite different way. We see him as the servant of the Lord, so much predicted in the prophecies of Isaiah. Here you have the servant of the Lord, the mighty worker of God. Particularly in Mark, we have many miracles. He is the mighty worker of God, not just the lawgiver, 
Mark doesn't say so much about the discourses of the Lord Jesus. Instead we find in Mark that he is the worker, the servant of the Lord, doing the will of God, moving amongst the people who serves both God and humanity. A wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord, the mighty worker, the power of God in service. The ox, in other words, to bring it all together, the ox or the calf of service and sacrifice. There are two things that the ox we find in the Bible symbolize. Service and sacrifice. Sacrificial service. And here we have it gloriously presented to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We move on to Luke. In Luke we see Christ as the man after God's own heart, the friend of sinners, the compassionate teacher. Luke paints a picture of Christ which is unparalleled for its tenderness and its compassion. We find him the friend of sinners. We see him as the shepherd who goes out till he finds the one lost sheep, the woman who can't rest till she's found the one lost coin, the father who cannot rest till his prodigal son returns to him. It is the picture above and beyond all of the one who was the man after God's own heart. To sum it all up, in one way he was the son of Adam. And that's why um, in the Gospel of Luke we are taken right back in his genealogy to Adam. Whereas Matthew only takes us back to David and beyond David to Abraham. Luke goes on to Adam. Why? Because he wants to present to us this aspect of Christ. He wants to show him to us as the man, Christ Jesus. In John, we see Christ as the eternal son, the life of the ages, not one who just has life, but one who is the life of the ages, who hath life in himself. The word of God, having and giving eternal life to all who will believe on him. The Son of God. If we add it all up, sum it all up, then in John we have the eagle soaring into the eternal heavens of God. That's the picture we have in John of the Lord Jesus. So we have this fourfold picture looked at from within God. Looked at from without, man. Looked at from one side, the king. Looked at from the other side, the servant. All bound up and fulfilled in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. In all four Gospels, it is the Saviour who is introduced. The Saviour of the world. Each gospel presents the Lord Jesus Christ supremely as the one who came into this world to die on the cross that he might become the saviour of all who put their trust in him. But you see, we've got this fourfold aspect of his saviourhood. We have him as the royal saviour. We have him as the serving saviour. We have him as the human saviour. And we have him as the divine saviour. If you like, we have him as the Messiah who is our saviour. The Christ 
who is our saviour. We have him as the servant of the Lord who is amongst us as a servant, humbly serving us as the one who has come to seek and to save that which is lost. We have him presented to us as the man who is our saviour. And we have him presented to us as God, our saviour. Here then, again, is this fourfold view of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting also to note in passing, we won't dwell on it, but it is interesting to note that Matthew was written to Jews, Mark was written to Romans, it was written probably at the instigation of the Apostle Peter in Rome by John Mark, to Romans, that's why you've got a lot of explanations in that little gospel. Luke was written to Greeks, and John was different to the other three. It was an interpretation for everyone. It supplemented the other three uh, Gospels. The first three we call synoptic. And this word synoptic I will explain. It means simply seeing together or seeing with. In other words, we call them synoptic Gospels because we want to see them with each other. Another word for it is a general survey, a summary. So we call three Gospels, we say, they follow the same line. Uh, They've got the same type of structure and the same purpose. Uh, And therefore we call them synoptic, they must be seen with each other. They each complement the other and the three together give us a a conclusive summary (coughs) of the subject, synoptic. Now, the, the last gospel is not synoptic. This is very important. It is an interpretation. Instead of just being an account of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last gospel is, in fact, an interpretation um, written because John wanted to supplement the other gospels which were already in existence. He felt there were some weaknesses in it, and he wrote this last greatest of the Gospels in order to supplement it. Therefore, the last Gospel is uh, quite different. It is an interpretation. It's not chronological. It's not an account. It's not a history. It is, in fact, an interpretation of the life and ministry and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that uh, makes things a little more uh, clear. So upon this very solid four-square foundation rests our eternal salvation and our eternal inheritance. We have a four-square foundation. If you knock that foundation away, you've lost everything. And you cannot do with only three parts of it. It is four-square. And upon this For square salvation, the everlasting salvation of every man and woman in this room and every man or woman who's ever put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in both covenants rests squarely. It is upon this foundation. Now, of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew is the one most fitted to have and occupy the first place in the New Testament. 
not merely because it is the longest, it is the longest, by the way, I expect most of you know that, but because it is the best link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is therefore an interesting fact that in all the earliest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that we know of, Matthew occupies the first place. Now this is quite important to our understanding of um, Matthew. Why isn't Mark first? Now I've heard some rather clever Bible scholars uh, in my time and I've heard one or two say that they thought John ought to have been the first. God, in his infinite wisdom, has seen the need to put Matthew first, not John. There are others who have told us that it would have solved a lot of problems if we'd put Mark first. See, there are some people who say, wouldn't it be wonderful if we started the New Testament with the phrase, in the beginning was the word, would correspond exactly with, in the beginning God. So, of course, it all sounds very good. And we think to ourselves, well, why not? That sounds a good idea. Why not mess up the arrangement that's come to us and put John first? And anyway, why not have the interpretation first and then the three accounts of the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus next? Others have said, why not put Mark first? Mark is undoubtedly the earliest of the Gospels. And therefore, if we had Mark first, followed by Matthew, followed by Luke, we would have them in a more or less chronological order. See? But as I say, God in his infinite wisdom has put Matthew first. And there's a reason why Matthew has come to occupy the first place, and why from antiquity Matthew has occupied the first place in the order of the books of the New Testament. Uh, I think it is more than anything else because Matthew emphasizes in a way that none of the other Gospels do the link that exists between the Old and the New Testament. Indeed, he presents Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He sees Christ as the flowering of the Old Covenant. Not as something abruptly new, but as the flowering. Now, those of you who know your, your, your Bibles, you know that Mark begins abruptly. He doesn't tell us anything about the birth of Christ. He doesn't tell us anything about the background of Christ. He doesn't give us the historic lineage of Christ. He doesn't give us any genealogy or pedigree. He just suddenly says, there came a man called John. And he was baptizing, and the Lord Jesus appeared, and he was baptized, and the heavens opened, and the Spirit of God came upon him. That's where Mark begins quite abruptly. On the other hand, Matthew doesn't. Matthew goes right back to Abraham. In other words, he encompasses the whole history of the people of God of the covenant people of God. Of course, the history of God's dealings with his children goes beyond that. It goes right back to Seth, right back to Adam. But in fact, you see, Matthew takes us right back to Abraham, and in doing so, he encompasses the whole history of all God's dealings with his people right through. Therefore, it is, in fact, Matthew's point that Christ stands in the progressive historical line of the unfolding revelation of God. He doesn't see him as just suddenly abruptly appearing, but says, here he is, he is the flowering of the old. 
The old has taken thousands of years gradually to develop, gradually to unfold. Christ doesn't suddenly come and lay it all aside, abolish it all, put it all off. He comes as the consummation of it all. He comes as the fulfillment of it all. He comes as the glorious flowering and fruiting of all that has gone before. This is why the gospel according to Matthew is the first of the gospels. It is because um, the law and the prophets and the psalms have not only not been abolished, they've not even been laid aside. Never get the idea that the law and the prophets have been laid aside just like that. People talk very loosely about this. We're not under law, we're under grace. As if somehow or other we can dismiss the Old Testament. Do you know in many places I go I find people never even read the Old Testament? This idea is bitten so deeply into some people, especially on the continent, Christians, that they feel that the Old Testament is irrelevant. It's quite irrelevant. It, it belongs to what has been abolished, what has been laid aside. My dear friend, there's a great difference between something being abolished and being fulfilled. Fulfilled. Christ didn't just lay it aside. He fulfilled it. That is, in his own glorious and blessed person, he took up everything we find in the law, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, and he fulfilled it in himself. He gave us, as it were, the picture of what it could be like to keep all the law, to, to, to have within him, as it were, the very prophetic spirit that governs the Old Testament, to, to have within him that spirit of devotion and understanding of God that we find in the Psalms and we find in those other writings. The Lord Jesus is the embodiment of it. He, he, he is, as it were, the, the, the consummate gathering together of everything that is in uh, the Old Testament. They are fulfilled. Think of that. You who are older Christians in the Lord, go away and think about it. Not abolished, not laid aside, but fulfilled <coughs> in him. So we could say very much about this because I, I, I would like to say that we have the, um, the, uh, the one who has fulfilled all the Old Testament dwelling within us. How then can we deny it? If he is in us, he who has fulfilled the law will keep the law in us. It's not that we have become, got to become slaves to an outside external regulation and system, but we have the one who has fulfilled it and he's within us. So we have the one who within us has not only fulfilled it all, but can live that perfect life of fulfillment in us. And it is no longer a question of trying to keep an outward thing, but a question of an obeying an inward spirit. And as we obey the spirit, never once shall we ever be led contrary to the word of God. The surest, surest sign that a person is not led by the spirit of God is when they start to do daft things that are contrary to the word of God. Holy Spirit who wrote it all knows every bit of it at any given time. I don't. My mind is finite. I can't grasp it all. But the Holy Spirit who is within me and within you, he knows it all. He'll never lead us contrary to the word 
of God. So Matthew alludes to at least 63 Old Testament verses of which 43 he quotes in full. No other gospel writer uh, quotes so much of the Old Testament. 43 verses of the Old Testament he quotes in full as being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Matthew uses a phrase which is nowhere else found in the other Gospels, which is quite impressive. It is this. Now, I, I expect most of you, when you hear it, will think, oh, but that's elsewhere. You go look. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet so-and-so. This is exclusive to the Gospel according to Matthew. And it is a phrase which he uses again and again and again, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Here are just a few examples very quickly. Uh, if you turn to Matthew, we'll just take the first few that we can find from chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 22. Now all this has come to pass that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and then he quotes. Um, chapter 2, verse 17. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, saying, uh, verse 23, uh, And came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophets, that he should be called a Nazarene. Chapter 4, verse 14, That it might be fulfilled which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, uh, Chapter 8, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken to the Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our diseases. Here then we could go on and we could go on. This phrase, which is quite unique to the gospel according to Matthew, goes to the root of this. He is the link between the Old Testament and the New, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he, his purpose is to show us that everything has been fulfilled in Christ. Do you think that I could have that door open? I, I'm so sorry to ask you. Some I think are probably freezing you. Uh, I, um, I believe we can see all that I've been uh, saying thus far, if you've been with me. Um, uh, I, think we, I believe we can see all that I've said thus far quite intentionally, deliberately, in the genealogy that we have in Matthew chapter 1. Now, you may not quite realize this, but you see, it is in fact one of the interesting things in the book of Matthew, Gospel according to Matthew. Quite intentionally, these three groups of 14 generations have been contrived. <coughs> contrived. In other words, the first group of 14 generations from Abraham right through to the carrying away um, uh, to, to, to King David are in fact absolutely correct. The next 14 generations, there are three kings left out, all the um, uh, offspring of Ahab, but they're completely left out of this account. And therefore, we discover that we have got this figure 14. It has been deliberately contrived. It's not incorrect. He doesn't say these are all the generations between Abraham and Christ. He says, so we have 14. Now, it is e even more impressive in this. 
he says, so all the generations, all the generations from Abraham unto David are 14. He doesn't say all. From David unto the carrying away to Babylon, 14. And from the carrying away to Babylon to Christ, 14. He doesn't say all. And it's quite interesting. It is contrived. We have three groups of 14. Now, of all the writings in the New Testament, except possibly the letter of James, Matthew is the most rabbinical. That is, it's most like the writings of the rabbis. And the rabbis were tremendously fond of figures. They did everything. They got a kind of mathematical complex so that they used to get everything screwed up into this number, that number, or the other. Here we have three groups of 14, which equals, if my mathematics are correct, and not they're not generally, but I have checked these, um, 42 generations. Now, 42 generations. From Abraham to Christ, there are 42 generations. There is only one other 42 in the Bible. The other 42 in the Bible are the 42 stations or stopping places in the wilderness from the Passover into the Promised Land. Isn't that remarkable? In other words, it's just as if somehow or other Matthew is playing on the name Jesus, which is Jeshua, which is Joshua. As if spiritually he's sitting before us, before us some tremendous truth. Those, eight, those people of God under the old covenant could find no rest in the wilderness. There was no rest for them until God raised up Joshua. And it said expressly of Joshua, he caused the people to inherit. And they went over into the land and possessed the promised land. Surely then when we look in this first chapter and we realize this, we come to verse 20, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Jesus, which is the Greek form of Jeshua, which was another form of Hosea or Hosea, which was a form of Joshua, the ancient Joshua. Here you've got it. Call his name Joshua. Call his name Joshua. Here is the one who is going to take his people over into the promised land. He is the one who God will cause to, um, cause to make his people inherit what is theirs. Now, is that just fanciful? I am not at all sure that it is. For this reason, from Abraham to Christ, there was no rest. The whole history of the Old Testament is a story of a seeking and a searching for the city which hath the foundation. They were pilgrims, they were sojourners. Although they had a temple, although they had a land, yet all the time they were in quest for something more. They found the promised rest. Why is it not somehow found in Hebrews chapter 11, if it comes to your mind, those of you who know your Bibles a little better, when it says uh, this, and these all, having had witness born to them through their faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing concerning us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They didn't come into, they didn't enter into the promised rest of God. Although they sought it, 
from all those generations from Abraham right through to the Christ. Now, why Abraham? Because Abraham is the human father of the covenant people. To him was given the token of circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant people of God. So we go back to Abraham, and from the very commencement of the people of God, before then it was a family only, from that point on it was a people. From, from Abraham onwards, we have this amazing, amazing uh, 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 setting forth of a truth that they did not find the rest God had promised them until the Joshua of God came into the world who would take us over into all that God has ever promised his people that we might both inherit it and enjoy it. Oh, well, I say to me, I find that absolutely tremendous. And you know, Dear friend, whoever you are, you'll never find the promised rest of God till you find Christ. Here, in the opening chapters of the New Testament, we find wise men coming from these wise men. They'd come a long way because they had found the promised rest of God, representative of the Gentiles, who were in greater and greater numbers to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and find in him with all those uh, Jews who also have believed the promised rest of God. Certainly and everyone else and everything else fell short till Christ came. It doesn't matter who it is. Even Moses fell. Everyone fell. There is not one of them that didn't fall short. There it stands, written in black and white in the books of the Old Covenant, that not one who set out on the journey actually attained of himself. It was the grace of God which encompassed them and took them on and uh, will finally see them in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of all God's desires and thought. He has fulfilled, uh, he who, who has come to fulfill it all can cause us to inherit what God promises us and has given to us. There is just one other little thing I might just add here, and that is if you again turn back to Matthew and chapter 1, in this first chapter, uh, we, I think, perhaps see what I've been saying <coughs> in another way. In the first verse, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here was God's new beginning. Yes, in one sense it is absolutely true that Christ is the flowering and consummation of the old. But in another sense, he was God's new beginning. Now, isn't it interesting that the very phrase we find in the book of Genesis, we find at the beginning of the New Testament. This is the book of the generations of the heaven and earth. Here are the book of the generations of Adam. And so if you look through Genesis, you'll find this phrase coming again and again. Here we've got it at the start of the New Testament. God's new beginning in which through grace 
he has included all who put their trust in him. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Now, my dear friend, just remember that it says the book. The book. It is extraordinary that this whole book is the book of the generation. Is it not? Why should this book be called the book of the generation of the uh, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, if it's not God's new beginning. I tell you, it is God's new beginning. For here we have set before us God's king over God's kingdom. It is a new beginning. The day has dawned. Oh, it's a glorious thing to look at it like that. That's why John the Baptist comes out and he cries, Repent! The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the first words the Lord Jesus uttered was, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here you've got it. God's new beginning. God's new man. God's new king. With God's new beginning. And God's new people. We've got it all here. Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. And indeed, it was, as I've already said before, written with Jews in mind, and especially Jewish Christians in mind. So we find references in Matthew to the holy city, the holy place, the city of the great king, the son of David, the kingdom of heaven. By the way, the kingdom of heaven was a rabbinical way of saying something. Um, the more uh, general Christian way was the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the old rabbinical way, the kingdom of heaven. Again, no doubt the Lord Jesus did use it. Uh, this is again interesting. We have the most Jewish atmosphere here in this um, gospel according to Matthew. The genealogy is taken only to Abraham and not to Adam as it is in Luke. Indeed, as I have said, it's being called the most rabbinical writing in the New Testament. And this is what gives Matthew that rather ecclesiastical atmosphere that some Christians find tiring. And um, I notice that Christians enjoy John and they enjoy Mark. Uh, but you don't normally find Christians enjoying Matthew quite so much. I think it's because they feel that it has a more ecclesiastical atmosphere. Uh, this, this sort of atmosphere, more, so we say, heavy, more complex somehow. Um, I can't quite explain it. But Matthew has got that atmosphere. If you compare Matthew with Mark, you'll see what I mean. Mark is simple, direct, and to the point. Matthew is glorious. And yet somehow or other, there's a heaviness uh, with Matthew. It is definitely more uh, Jewish, more um, rabbinical, uh, more ecclesiastical, perhaps is the way we could put it over for us here. It's got an ecclesiastical atmosphere. It was written with the purpose of setting forth Christ as the Messiah, the King of God's people. Thus, the, the, the stress, the emphasis on the descent from Abraham and David in Matthew chapter 1, which we have already mentioned, and the use of Old Testament texts proving that Christ is the promised son of David, who is to fill the throne of David and rule over the new Israel of God, in which Gentiles are to be gloriously included as equals. So we discover that Matthew presents Christ supremely as God's 
king over God's kingdom. And if you want an Old Testament, um, uh, a few verses in the Old Testament, which I think adequately sum up the, the purpose of the book of Matthew, then I would turn you to Psalm 2. And here you've got it from the very moment that it starts with um, Herod uh, murdering the, the infants in Bethlehem and right the way through. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. Verse 6. Yet, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I think there you've got a wonderful summing up of the purpose of the gospel according to Matthew. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Here he comes, born of the Virgin Mary, God's king. Well, we could say so very much really about this, but I m would like to say, although I think it's very hot and perhaps you're finding it difficult to listen, never underestimate the vital need of Christ as God's King. Don't let this just run off you, as I've said, like water off a duck's back. Never underestimate the vital need of God's King. For it is this very matter that lies at the root of all the trouble in the world. And it is for this very reason that the first book of the New Testament presents Christ to us in his royalty and in his majesty. God's king presented to us over God's kingdom who shall one day rule the nations with a rod of iron. Don't underestimate this. People tend to feel, well, why isn't he presented as saviour? Of course he's presented as saviour. The fact is that he's presented first to us as king. He is the king. Now, I've said that this lies at the root of all the trouble in the world. It not only lies at, all the, at the root of all the trouble in the world, it lies at all the root of the trouble in the church. And it lies at, uh, at the root of all the trouble in your personal life and mine. It doesn't matter where we are, what race we are, what nationality we are, what background is ours, what generation we live in. This lies at the root of all the trouble in the world, in all the, all the trouble in the church and all the trouble in personal life. It is a question of whether he is king or isn't king. And that's why the New Testament opens with this glorious, glorious picture of Christ our Saviour as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Am I right here? I am. I am. It is the very nature of sin to put Christ out. S-I-N. It's the very nature of sin. Listen to 1 John chapter 3 verse 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. 
How is sin the transgression of the law? Isn't sin something more inward? Yes. It means I will not have him to rule over me. So I break the law. I can't help it. By putting him out, I automatically become a transgressor of the law. Now, if you look back into your life, you will find that every breakdown goes back to this. It's because you've not listened to him. You've not obeyed him. There's some issue in your life over which you're not being obedient. Is he king in your life? It's very simple. Oh, you say, well, I can't be, I can't let him be king of my life in this particular matter. This, this, and this, and this would happen. My dear friend, you'll get yourself into a terrible mess. He knows best. When he is king, you may sail into troubled waters, but he'll get you through because he is king. And this is the gospel that presents Christ to us as king. He sits above all the noise, all the floods, the, the noise of many waters. He rules. He's majestic. Everything is in his capable hands. And even when he lets go at the cross, he becomes the most worthy one to be king in all the universe. By letting go, he has proved his right to the throne of God forever and ever. Well, I say, it's the root of all this trouble. What is wrong with the world? Is it not simply that we have rebelled against God's kingship? Isn't that what's wrong with the world? The world is so designed that God's king is the hub heart of the body tear the heart out and the thing goes to pieces tear the hub out and the wheels lost its center of strength its focal point and that's what's happened what's wrong with the world oh if you turn to judges and chapter 21 and verse 25 i think you've got a perfect example of what is wrong with the world what is wrong with the church and what is wrong with your personal life, if there is anything wrong with your personal life? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man that did that which was right in his own eyes. Isn't that exactly where we are in the world? Everyone does that which was right in his own eyes. The nations put themselves first. The races put themselves first. You and I put ourselves first. We all do that which is right in our own eyes. So there's, there's conflict, there's strife, there's trouble, there's war. There's hatred, there's jealousy, there's emulation. There are all these things come out of this simple thing. There is no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone does that which is right in his own eyes. I say that's the root of it. Unhappy humanity will never escape from its anarchy, its emptiness, its strife, its aimlessness, until it discovers and owns God's king. You and I will never know the peace and the rest of God till he is king in our life. I could say so much more, but really our time has gone. We have then at the very beginning of the New Testament, Christ presented to us as God's king. We see him born. We see him grow up. We hear him speak. We see him act. But the crowning revelation of all is that God's king becomes God's savior. And the one whose right it is to rule steps down 
and allows himself to be crucified by the hands of godless and wicked men that he might become the saviour of us all. The very people to whom he came as king crucified him. And we also, we've all had a part in the crucifying of the Lord Jesus Christ since it was the sin of every one of us who nailed, who, which nailed him uh, to the tree. God's king becomes God's saviour and brings us into his kingdom. Isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't it have been a tragedy if all we'd seen was the king and if all we'd heard was the manifesto of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, if we'd only heard the laws and principles of the king uh, enunciated and defined, what could we have done if we'd only seen miracles, physical miracles, miracles of spirits being cast out and so on? If that's all that had happened, where would we be tonight? But he who came to show us what God meant by kingship and kingdom and a king became the saviour of us all. And now by his becoming our saviour you and I have been brought into the kingdom itself. The kingdom is one of the great themes of Matthew. Uh, second only to the king. And you know there's been great difficulty over this word kingdom because in its first meaning it means really not so much though the territory that's governed but the kingship of the Lord in other words it's very difficult we get in our minds kingdom we always immediately think of the sphere of the territory it does mean that but it first means the kingship the kingship do you know anything about the kingdom not that you're just born into the kingdom not that you've just been saved by the grace of God and, and, and made a subject of the kingdom of God, but do you know anything about the kingship of God? Do you know anything about the kingdom of God coming to you? It doesn't just mean that you're saved, but that you know the kingship of Jesus. He is Lord in your life, and you know it. He rules without, without any question of contradiction in your life. You may fail, of course. We all do. You may sin. There may be much that somehow goes awry, but is he king? That's why this gospel according to Matthew is so tremendous. Some of you seek for a fullness. Some of you seek for an answer to various problems and needs. I want to tell you that perhaps you have overlooked the simplest key of all to your problems and your need and the answer to your seeking. It lies within the kingship of God's Christ. Is he king? Or do you just want to have some experience or something apart from his kingship that means that you yourself are satisfied, that you can just go on untouched in some way, that you can become an entity in yourself? This, you, it may surprise you to know, is the message of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Right the way through, Matthew's great plan is to show us that a kingdom cannot exist without the king. All roads lead to the king in the kingdom of God. And really what he's trying to tell us is that without the kingship of Christ in the life, the kingdom of God cannot function. 
Ah, my dear child of God, you may be born of God. Through his grace you may be saved. You may have legally entered into the kingdom. But the point is, do you know him as king? Are you experiencing the blessings of the kingdom? Are you experiencing the provision of the kingdom? Do you know what God has got for you in this wonderful kingdom of heaven? Of God. I say it's all bound up with the king. You can be saved by the saviourhood of Jesus. But you will never know the blessings or the provision or the life of the kingdom unless he is king. His kingdom is essentially bound up with his person. His kingship. These two things in the Greek are together. And unfortunately in English we cannot put them. Either we have to say kingship or kingdom. But every time you read that word kingdom you should put kingdom, kingship and kingdom. Think of the two together as two sides of one thing. Kingship and kingdom. Kingship and kingdom. So when the Lord Jesus says the kingdom of God is neither here nor there, it is within. He meant the kingship. The sovereignty of God. The rule of God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven so on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. It's all bound up together. It's the kingdom. And the kingdom goes back to the king. Oh, we must finish. But if only we Christians were to truly understand this, you know, this place would be liberated. Liberated. There would be no danger. No counterfeit. No danger. There could never be an excess of the kingship of Jesus. Never. That's one, one matter uh, that you'll never go overboard on. It doesn't matter how far you go in the kingship of Jesus, you can only be safe. Go as far as you like, but you'll be safe. Uh, this, I think, is the message of Matthew. He's at great pains to tell us this. And so later on as we go through this gospel according to Matthew, we shall discover that it is not for nothing that the New Testament opens with God's king set on God's holy hill of Zion. He's there. Now, my dear friend, either you and I fall on him and get broken, or in the end he will fall on us and grind us to powder. It is either you and I come to the kingship of God and willingly bow the knee to him and own his lordship or in the end we shall bow whether we like it or not. The day comes in the end when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus as Lord. Now I have exhausted myself and exhausted you and exhausted the time but I will just say uh, one last thing about the style of this book and we will close. Matthew's Gospel contains the largest single block of discourse material in the whole of the Gospels. Indeed, three-fifths of this Gospel is comprised of discourses. 
that just talks. It is not a fragmentary, haphazard recording of facts and talks, but is characterized by an orderly arrangement of the material. Now, that's very important. The arrangement is not always a chronological one, whereas Mark and Luke is, on the whole, for Matthew groups together facts and discourses according to <laughs> subjects, not according to times. This definite structure or arrangement has a very definite purpose to show how God's Messiah came into this world and fulfilled his calling and his work. Matthew has a quite distinctive style. He inclines to summarize uh, the events he describes, not giving much attention. Now you will find that the other Gospels will give much, many more, uh, much t uh, more detail to the stories that we find common to them all. Matthew doesn't. He doesn't bother about uh, detail. One of the things about his style is the lack and absence of vividness of detail in the events he describes. He is much more one for the discourses. Oh, he revels in the discourses of the Lord Jesus. What he said, the laws of the kingdom, the manifesto of the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom. These are the things that simply enthralled Matthew, and rightly, for he was dealing with the king, not the servant. He was presenting to our, for us the king, Jesus as king. Uh, his approach and handling of the material is Hebrew, which we would expect. Nevertheless, it has been said that Matthew is one of the most attractive and powerful books ever written. Now, it is because we are also familiar with it that we overlook that. And I dare say that if I sat down and took a new modern version and read to you one or two of the chapters of Matthew, you would be enthralled if you could only cut yourself away from the familiarity which breeds a kind of indifference and apathy. If I read to you Matthew 11, that tremendous chapter, and end up with, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you it. I think you will begin to understand just how attractive Matthew's gospel is. And what a cumulative effect his arrangement of material in subjects is. Instead of having one event here, chronologically, another one there, another one, he puts them all under subject. So you get one following the other after the other, until in the end, it, the cumulative effect is impressive. It just captures you. Why does he do this? You see, his aim is to vindicate the messiahship and kingship of Jesus. And to show from the Old Testament the very fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Christ. Uh, uh, Jesus. This he does and does in a way that I suppose no one else has yet surpassed. Well, next week we'll talk about the authorship and date and then we'll talk about the key to the book and we'll look a little bit more into the key that I hope and trust will open this gospel according to Matthew to us all. But do remember one thing as you go away tonight. We've talked about the kingship of Jesus. Is he really king? Really king in your life? In my life? I dare to suggest that all our problems would be solved if he was king. Truly, genuinely, holy king of our lives.
Shall we pray? And now, Lord, we thank thee for this time spent together and for thy enabling grace in every way. And we pray that nothing that has been said of thyself by thy spirit, that which is true and genuine is truth, that it will be lost, nothing of it lost, Lord, but by thy spirit kept alive and made part of every one of us. And we ask it all in thy name. Amen. Amen.